Hello everyone and welcome back to Travel Thoughts. It's been a while since I last did a podcast, just COVID-induced madness. Tonight I've been thinking about probability and potential and, as always with me, perspective. There's always, especially in our culture, we understand that that there's always a a road not taken or a fork not taken, Um, especially, and I believe it's Emerson, the quote, I will always take the road less travelled. So we always think about what we could have we done, what should have we done, what what other options will will, will we present where we presented with that we could have made use of, especially in an economic sense. Oh, wish I'd made better sense of that. Wish I'd spent that money differently. I oh, wish. Oh, how could I have not known that this would have happened in the future? And it's impossible. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and telling the future is you know impossible in quantum reality. But what about? larger ones what would have happened if the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct what would have happened if the earth had taken longer to cool what would have happened if Jupiter didn't exist and the reason I say Jupiter is because the reason why life on earth has been so stable and why we don't get bombarded by meteorites and asteroids constantly is because Jupiter catches most of them it is ungodly huge it's like almost a star in its own right and as a result it catches things that we're going to hit us and so Jupiter is a large part of why Earth has been so stable over time and if the dinosaurs didn't exist I mean there's this lovely little factoid that every every single drop of water that exists on the planet today has at some point been dinosaur pee which is absolutely correct water is a constant if the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct then mammals may not have arisen. Without the rise of mammals, you don't get the rise of apes, and then you don't get the rise of humans. Would then, in that place, have the same kind of us, some sort of reptilia sapiens sapiens, rather than homo sapiens sapiens? And that's probably not what you would call it, but it's a good, good enough analogy. Would you get a different kind of species? Would you get different critters? The the answer to that is as variable as the stars in the sky. The suite of circumstances that that we blood think, to be honest, has led to human sentience is not terribly well understood. The pressures, we know about some of the pressures that existed upon us as a juvenile species. We know some of the reasons why we came out of the trees and started standing on our high legs, or at least have theories that are widely accepted. All of this could be bloody wrong. So in a way that time passes and and events occur and there could be other events that occur in their stead. Um, Anyone who's watched any kind of popular culture will think about time travel. Um, Back to the future where you go back and change time. Doctor Who where they talk about fixed points that cannot be changed and they will never be changed. They have to happen. This is not an argument for that. Time travel in a Einsteinian universe is a crazy idea and involves mostly light speed and that's about it. So, what about in our own lives? Humans, as a general rule, especially in our society, are punished for not taking... We punish ourselves and are in some ways externally punished for not taking certain steps, not making certain decisions. 
did you not take advantage of that prime economic, that, that prime monetary circumstance? Oh, too bad. It sucks to be you. You are now poor forever. Ha, 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 ha. Suck shit. I'm going to go do cocaine. Cocaine. And yes, I have a very low opinion of financiers. Anywho, never mind. So we're very pun- we're punished for that. And we punish ourselves. Unduly so. We say, oh, damn, I should have done better. I should have recognized for that what, for what it was. That's largely impossible. It's the same argument as the grass is greener on the other side. Comparing yourself to the Joneses and saying, oh, their life is so much better. Oh, look at all the pictures they put on, on Facebook. Oh, their child is so adorable and their life is so amazing. And, and they're incredibly detailed and specifically curated photos that give the best possible light of their lives. Looks so amazing. Why can't I have that? Well, you do have that as much as they do. It's not possible to have a perfect life because it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as perfection. We all do what we can in this inherently horrifyingly flawed governmental and capitalist society that we live in. This is one of those points where I'm trying not to delve into politics. So why do we have this perspective? So why why do we, we punish ourselves for not taking advantage of certain opportunities? In my mind, I think it has something to do with an evolved pressure to put us, to make us be aware of future activities. And this goes back to talking about, look at one of our, our human cousins, almost human cousins, Homo neanderthalus. Mostly their, their habitat was Europe, Northern Europe. They were adapted to cold climates. They were shaggier, hairier, and stockier. Um, and the image of them in popular culture is of this brutish caveman the, you know, kill with a stone axe or be killed, something like that, except they found fossils of Homo neanderthalus that had lived to a ripe old age of 40 or 50 with congenital defects or serious injuries that had long since healed. So say someone had been born with a dodgy left arm, been born that way and then lived to the age of 40. They clearly could not hunt for themselves, they clearly could not care for themselves, so the tribe looked after them which totally changes the way we look at Homo neanderthalus. They're not a brutish caveman. They are loving families that cared for each other. And yeah, they would have scrapped with the other blokes over the other valley for territory and food, especially when Cro-Magnum man and Homo sapien come swinging his bloody great big dick around. We share about 4 5% of our DNA with them. But yeah, perspective on them has changed. So... I have briefly lost the point I was trying to make. So we go to our next nearest cousin, human, and say, what... Um, yes, I've got my point. Haha. Their concept of language. If you say to a modern human, we have to be careful, there's tigers down by the river. And when I say modern human, I mean Homo sapiens really is the modern human. There's been a whole bunch of other humans, but they're not the modern ones, not by any stretch of the imagination. So, a modern human says, don't go, watch out when you're down by the river, there might be tigers. 
that is actually a really complicated sentiment because there's a threat. The tiger represents a series of course, a series of actions and probabilistically determined, probabilistically determined responses and actions. But also the tiger might be there. Not that there is a tiger there, the tiger might be there. So you have to think in three-dimensional sp time space that if you go down there and you see no sign of tiger, then you have to be aware of it because while the tiger's not there, there could be a tiger. There's some evidence to suggest that Homo neanderthalus didn't possess that abstraction of language. And there's always there's a lot of conversations in sociological circles about abstraction of thinking and how can you create that maybe scenario. And Neanderthal would say to you, there's tigers by the river. Because if there was one once, there therefore must be always. They had no, their brain could not abstractly create the modifier for maybe, for there might be tigers by the river. So to them, there was always a tiger by the river. If you would go down to the river and you didn't see a tiger, it's because you didn't see the tiger, the tiger was still there and just decided not to eat you. Now that's pretty insular, that would create very insular societies. You don't go there because there's a danger. The danger might come and go, but to you, you can't possess it. You can't perceive that that danger is not there. So Homo sapiens have this ability to say, there might be danger. There might be a problem. There is potentially a hazard. Now, if you work in any industry that requires a higher degree of occupational health and safety, I used to be a geologist, so I've worked on drilling rigs, absolutely higher standard there, mine sites, uh, armed forces, police forces, Actually, I'm not sure what they do it, but they must. You got you get into the mindset of doing thinking about hazards and thinking about problems and thinking about potential consequences. And the difference, obviously, a hazard is a problem, and the consequence is what's going to happen if that problem goes off. So we have to abstractly analyze it. So we're kind of geared up to think about potentialities and potential hazards potential events. So we're constantly looking forward to seeing, well, what will I have to deal with next? What danger might I be in? And at this point, you should imagine Yoda with his little stick bashing the shit out of Luke Skywalker saying, you know, your mind is always on the horizon. Your mind is not in the now. Because we're always thinking about the tiger that might be by the river. We are evolutionarily bloody programmed to do so. It is in our nature to imagine threats. And anyone of any perspicacity that could look at the modern media machine, especially what's happening with COVID in the United States, will see that humans are naturally inclined to look for hazards. It's why negative communication works so better than positive communication. We look for the negatives, we look for the hazards, we look for the problems. But we punish ourselves, as I've said before, we punish ourselves for not taking advantage of things. When it's a danger and we avoid that danger, we don't congratulate ourselves for avoiding that danger. There's no positive reinforcement. I don't know anyone, I don't, I've never done this myself and I don't know anyone who's done it, who rewards themselves for avoiding potentially harmful situations. You take it as gratis that you've avoided it. But you will punish yourself for not enjoying, like if you miss a financial opportunity, you'll punish yourself for not taking it. And usually that's very self-destructive. It could also be shameful to you. 
And if you want to go down the rabbit hole of shame in the fact that no one bloody understands what it actually is, I thoroughly recommend you watch TED Talk by Brene Brown. It's old now. She hits the nail on the fucking head quite well. So we go into self-destruction. We go, well, I didn't mean, I didn't do that properly. Then I'm going to sink into despair. This so often happens with fitness. You have a set image of what your body is like. You would like to change that. It is not immediately easy or obvious that this change is going to happen or is going to be obvious or whatever. And it's going to suck while you're doing it because it always sucks while you're doing it. And so when you fa- if you fail, the statistic for people that take up diets or exercise regimes and then stop is appallingly high, you will go down that self-destructive spiral even stronger. You might eat a bucket of ice cream or a block of chocolate or two blocks of chocolate or a bottle drink a bottle of wine or a bottle of tequila. And if this happens long enough, your mental health will seriously deteriorate. Why? What sort of half-assed monkey creatures are we that so focus on the negative, so focus on this, this, this perspective of potentialities that we go out of our way to punish ourselves? Now, of course, there's a conversation to be had here about easy food versus good food. Go into a supermarket and look at all the and, and shop as cheap as you can. You will have a trolley full of absolute unmitigated shit because it's cheaper and it's easier and because our society values those two things ergo we eat terribly and our diet is <laughs> if we compared our diet now to a diet of a hunter-gatherer man even in starvation times he probably still he or she still has the better diet we eat terribly and that's largely a, you know insert corporate rant here governmental rant as well um the science is there to tell us how to do better and how to live better it's just it's very difficult to do so when you're money poor time poor and stress poor and i say stress poor because we live in our day-to-day lives in the modern society a couple of thousand times more stressful lives than our hunter-gatherer ancestors did our hunter-gatherer ancestor worked about 30 hours a week trying to get enough food for him or his family more if it was lean times or a substandard environment but in a tropical paradise, that could even... You know, trop- no, I say tropical paradise, what does that even mean? But in an area flush with food that was easy to find, you could lower that even to maybe 20. And that's enough nutrition for the week. That's enough time to build shelter for that week, to maintain your tools, maintain your shelter. Because, you know, these guys would make their own knives, they'd make their own huts, they'd make everything, because you could pop down to 7-Eleven. Not that they sell axes, they should. Anyway, rambling point. Um, So we live these incredibly stressful lives where we're poor in all of the major friggin' metrics that matter. Like, time is now the, the, the most monstrous bloody commodity. It's insane how time poor we are in this society. If I seem slightly distracted, there's a traffic problem in front of me and I'm trying to negotiate it. Anyway. So we stressful lives. We punish ourselves for not performing X number of service or taking advantage of X opportunity and then we sabotage ourselves. This sort of destructive spiral happens all the time. It's everywhere. 
you might get you get dumped by a partner or you get rejected by a potential paramour or love interest you don't get that job you want to or you get fired or you get made redundant or you get demoted you don't get the promotion your uh, a relative dies now let's separate this from grief grief is different I could talk very differently about grief grief is a complicated thing but we'll move away from that we're talking about disappointments tragedies and things going wrong and the insanity and stress of day-to-day life and anyone who's lived through COVID will just that that globally traumatic event that's taken place that has just destroyed any sense of normalcy that's made everyone go burko crazy and I think the people who've managed to avoid putting on weight during the various isolations and lockdowns that have taken place are borderline psychopaths but you know I'm joking and that's just my opinion sort of mostly joking um (laughs) so we live in this this strange place we put all these pressures on ourselves because of perceptions and potentials and objectives and we have these desires and fantasies that are not even usually rooted remotely in reality and we punish ourselves when we don't meet them that's crazy that's insanity I'll say it again, we're bloody half-evolved monkey creatures that haven't quite learned how to be adult sentient organisms yet. And the larger issue here is that it stifles our development as people. So I was asked recently by a friend to sort of, she, she was talking to me about socialism and communism as opposed to a capitalist structure and we were talking about it. It was it's always interesting and she's taking a she's taking some very large steps into knowledge about that and that's fantastic. Um, and what society would we live in where like I mean look at Star Trek, it's a more egalitarian society. It's not terribly it's collectivist, but it's also individualist. It straddles that line. Uh, it's also complete fantasy and made up and it turns to hell in various portions like if you ever want a really really good critique of modern society then there are a handful of episodes of star trek deep space nine that are absolutely on point the one where they go back in time to racial troubles is just spot on for this what's going on in the world right now and another one where the federation is at war with the dominion with an alien force Earth is in trouble and it turns out that while Earth was paradise for everyone it really wasn't for everyone else and in another episode one of the characters says about humans they're fantastic, they're the best guys they're, the, they're your mates, they'll do anything for you, they're compassionate they take away their hot showers and their three meals a day and they will eat each other these are startlingly accurate critiques of human behavior in human society and I encourage anyone who wants to think about them to go and watch them um, I don't know the names of my of the episodes off the top of my head but if you google these things there's other people who talk about this all the time so what do we do where do we go like you could see I, I, as, as, as I do in these things I get to the event where I've described these horrible desperately needs improvement parts of humanity of our, of our default biology and psychology 
Um, there's no solution. Not really. I mean, you could have a transhumanist, posthumanist conversation about what would you turn humans into in order to to get over these problems, but kind of without the tools to do it. And they're very, they are some, but they're very primitive. It's largely intellectual masturbation, which, you know, really is what I'm doing with these podcasts, but whatever, shut up. Um, how do you design a society? So we've I don't, isolated some stresses that make humans make bad choices, punish themselves for those bad choices, and get into these cycles of despair and self-loathing that you then can't get out of. And you couple this with their freely available dopamine-inducing food. And let me talk about that for a second if you don't know what that means. There are only three things in life that you like. Dopamine, serotonin, and I can't always get these mixed up, oxycontin. I think it's oxycodone. I don't remember. I'm not a neuropsychologist. I'm a friggin' geologist. There's only three things. Those are the hormones in your brain, the happy, pleasurable hormones that you get a reward of when you do something positive. So that is an evolutionary behavior. When we are lonely, our dopamine drops. That's what we've been discovering during COVID, that we're lonely because you can't go out and see your mates. And if you live by yourself, it's even bloody worse. You're lonely. Your dopamine starts to drop because humans need to be in communities. Lone humans don't survive. Not in the wild. We die. Our giant, ridiculously giant, freaking-headed, hyper-intelligent babies that have to be born so early in their development for their giant, massive brains that they can barely stand or snuggle. They can do a suckle and whinge, whereas a horse can run about 11 seconds, probably on the way down to the ground. Not quite that fast. In order to protect these babies, we need society. So dopamine is something that can alternatively punish you or reward you for behaviors that encourage social cohesion. And there's a fascinating conversation to be had about the all of the infinite myriad of ways that a lot of our social behaviors are used to, to guide us towards social cohesion. I was talking to someone about this recently, that karma that we see as this extra universal force, and I don't know, I'm a bit more rational about it, this extra supernatural force that, that can reward you or punish you for your actions, or especially punish you for being a you know, douchebag. The way I think of it is that maybe it's a subconscious desire of ours to form social cohesion to protect our giant monstrous-headed babies um, that are so weak upon being born. So, you know, it goes both ways. So dopamine... Is good for is, is 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 a positive association because food gives it to you. On the most basic level, you need to be rewarded for eating, because if there was no reward for eating, y'all would starve to death, or you might accidentally starve to death. So there are all these mechanisms in the human body that remind you you're hungry. When there's been no food in your stomach for a while, your stomach acid goes up and starts to agitate you. So you go, oh, I should put some things in my belly that's actually gonna that's not rocks and eat something. The more subtle version of that is the dopamine effect. Why do you sit and eat an entire block of chocolate or an entire tub of ice cream or drink a case of beer? Because dopamine. It makes you feel better. Why do you stick heroin in your arm? Why do you put cocaine up your nose? Because it makes you feel better. In an uncaring world, in a society that punishes you for existing and expects 
monetary repayment for it in a society that doesn't care, that has been structured to tear you down so it can promote the few ahead of the many. The only friend you might have is your dopamine response. This is terrifying. And this is the root of addiction. There is... So I'm sure everyone who listens to this, all, you know, two of you, um, you have heard of something called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, in their book, there's 12 Steps to Recovery. I'm not sure about all of them. There's 12 Steps to Recovery. Russell Brandt is the comedian, British comedian, famously alcoholic and drug addict, published a book where he talks about Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and he redefines, because it was written in the 30s and 40s, it's old now, today, but the language is hard to come across, I think. The, he talks about when he was in rehab, um, a special, someone was talking to him, and, he, and they said, um, congratulations on surviving. Congratulations on making it to here. When you come, it talks to addiction, when it talks to these things that we do that aren't necessarily good for us, what are they sustaining us? The cold, raw, irrational pain of, ex- of just living is too much for some people. And you have to medicate. In fact, I'd argue that literally everyone medicates themselves every now and again against at least something. What is it you do that distracts you from the harsh, uncaring nature of being alive? And this turns into addiction. The dopamine response, which is at the core of this, is real and is being taken advantage of in our society by the entertainment industry, by, by the, the food industry, in order to, to give people what they really want and help them they self-medicate using these things. And the end of the day, it just comes down to potentials. What is the world not giving you that you need to find solace in something that will promote that dopamine response and our entire culture is based around that that desperate need to to soothe ourselves to soothe our existential dread at real the nature of reality and the storms that we weather and the ever so larger storms that are coming so i think the short answer to this entire conversation is ultimately self-care. It's ultimately self-love. It's ultimately being aware of your own humanity. I spend a lot of time talking about the flaws in our humanity, but there's some really fantastic parts of it too. We form connections on the drop of a hat. How many people have a plant that they call by name? Or a rock that they call by name. Yeah, I'm a geologist. I have many rocks that I name. I name lizards after classical philosophers and scientists. I have had, had a, um, I've had many skinks that live in my house, various houses that have been called various iterations of Copernicus because I form attachments with them. I form connections. So we pour ourselves out into the world around us. We pour our psychology out and we find... We find humanness in everything. We find clouds that look like giraffes. They're not, they don't look like giraffes, but we see it that way. We see faces in inanimate objects. It's always funny. 
So, perspectives and potentials. Don't punish yourself for existing. I'm not the kind of person to say, we should all love ourselves. That's not my shtick. Realize your potential in life is existing. That is a monument to itself. The likelihood of you not existing in the first place was significantly higher by orders of magnitude than the chance of you existing. There's a famous meme, it's old now, it says out of ten trillion, out of a trillion sperm, you're the one that made it bloody act like it, which I quite like. But your existence is 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 astonishingly unique. The conditions that make up the forming of your psychology and the decisions that you make are unique, ten times more unique than your fingerprint, hundred times more unique. So you're you. Celebrate it. Make connections. Thank you for listening to my ramblings.